0: Hello. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to our audience. Welcome to another episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking, the podcast series by the Young Lockwood Sour team at UBS in Houston. I'm your host, Liz Demontron. I'm one of the advisors on the team. And I am joined today by my teammate and one of the founding partners of our team, Barry Young. Hi, Barry.
1: Hi, Liz. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. How does it feel to be back in the seat?
1: It feels terrific, thanks.
0: <laughs> Good. It's a cold day here in Houston, so Barry's wearing his scarf for a visual, and um, we're very happy to have him, and we are thrilled to be introducing our guest today, who is Michelle White, the Senior Curator of the Minot Collection here in Houston. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, no. Like I said, we're delighted to be featuring you. I know you've had a busy fall, especially with getting the new exhibition, Niki De San Fall in the 1960s up and running. So we appreciate you taking the time. And I'll mention that UBS is one of the corporate sponsors on the event as well, or on the exhibition, I should say. You know, Michelle, we would love to hear a little bit about you and your background and your focus at the Manila.
2: Sure. Well, I'm senior curator at the museum and I oversee our holdings of modern and contemporary art. And along with working on acquisitions, working on building the collection, I also organize exhibitions like the Nicky Disson Fall Show. I've been at the museum for 15 years. Before that, I had jobs at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston and the Harvard University Art Museums. Uh, I have my master's from Tufts University and have over the course of my career here worked with artists, many artists, including Bia Selmans, Ronnie Horn, Klaus Oldenburg, Leslie Hewitt, among others, on
0: exhibitions. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. And you know, Michelle, before I turn things over to you, Barry, I wanted to just start with you with kind of an overarching question. You know, you have been at UBS for 30 years. I know that's hard to believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've also had kind of this parallel journey, parallel relationship with your involvement in the arts community here. And I would love to hear from you, you know, what a relationship between a global institution like UBS, you know, has with an organization like the Manil, and what similarities there are between these seemingly disparate, disparate worlds of art and finance.
1: Sure. Well, thanks for that. I appreciate that question. I consider myself a very loyal person and it's demonstrated by my tenure here at, at UBS. And, you know, I'm also an unabashed proponent of Houston and especially the arts community that, you know, shares uh, my hometown. And also in light of that appreciative of UBS's support for the local arts community. So, you know, my involvement in that community over the years It's been extremely fulfilling. It's been a lot of fun and enlightening for Elizabeth and me. I like to claim art collecting as my favorite pastime. And there are a lot of parallels, I think, between the uh, art world and the business world. And uh, at UBS, I I believe it's contextual. We believe as a firm that art brings communities closer together. And that's a shared trait, I think, that we have one of many with the Manil. With the Personally, I uh, like art because it's an exchange of ideas. And to me, that's captivating. You know, we sit at the crossroads of a tremendous amount of idea generation through our investment process, you know, I find that there's a corollary, uh, particularly with respect to organized markets, you know, with the art community, and uh, that brings to bear, you know, our participation uh, globally as a collecting institution, something we also share with the Manil, relative to our support of galleries around the world, museums, artists, and also the collectors that we serve uh, as as uh, as clients in our wealth management practice. The Collection uh, is routinely on display at 1285 Avenue of the Americas in New York. If you're walking by that building, it's free to walk in, also similar to the Manil, uh, which I find to be uh, amazing given the quality of work that's often there. And of course, we're also corporate sponsors of, uh, you know, Art Basel Miami, which is pretty, uh, and Art Basel around the world, which is uh, a fairly pro- prominent. In, you know, notable. Connections, uh, you know, to me are, are obvious and it'll be interesting to hear, you know, some of, I think, Michelle's, you know, take. I really have enjoyed trying to bring both sides, you know, together in a contextual way. Uh, and, you know, outside of New York, I find that, you know, Houston, given its history and as a business center and also a hub for uh, contemporary art, you know, it's, it's, it's really special relationship in that regard.
0: Absolutely. No, thank you for, for that. Thank you for your, your stewardship, Barry. And also we want to send a, a, a thank you to UBS and for its involvement and its support for the Manila as well. So Michelle, I will start with, you know, I'll start kind of high level. You have worked for many different organizations. I'm sure you've worked alongside and, and on many different exhibits featuring different artists. How did you and your team come to choose Nikki Desenfold as an artist to feature in this exhibition? And why the 1960s, seeing that she was so prolific?
2: Sure. I'm, I have long been a huge fan of Nikki Saint-Fall from my time when I was an undergrad in San Diego, where St. Paul lived at the end of her life, and I was always struck by how, how she just wasn't in my art history textbooks. When I came to the Manil, I was really excited to learn that we have a few key examples of her work from the 1960s, uh, specifically works where she started using a 22 caliber rifle to make a painting. There is simply not a lot of these works in the United States because she made them in Europe and she's just not as well known here. So I started digging into these objects in our collection, realizing how little scholarship had been done and started thinking through an idea of an exhibition that would revolve essentially around this moment when she starts using a gun, she starts making these really radical performance-based works that were so confrontational uh, to art history. And just recognize there was a lot to say and a lot of uh, work to be done that a good exhibition and an exhibition that I love to do really is one that, that takes us through a course of about five years to prepare, to write the publication, to secure the loans, to have the right conversations with people and scholars. And so it was just all sort of came together as a show that would broaden our understanding of art history, but a show that is connected to the Manil collection with what we have. The Manil supported uh, Nikki de Saint-Paul quite early on uh, in this era. So it was really thrilling uh, to be able to initiate this project here and we also felt and you know as we think about who do we show what kind of artists do we pick for presentation that we think a lot about the themes and ideas and as barry was saying art is about initiating dialogue we felt strongly that the themes she's addressing in the work on view themes of violence themes of female empowerment and mobility were certainly relevant to contemporary conversations we're having
0: now. Absolutely. And, you know, part of that five-year process of getting everything up and running and all the brainstorming and conversations, one thing I'm sure that was discussed and implemented was the organization of the exhibition, which I found really interesting, both thematically and, and spatially. I would love to hear from you, you know, how a viewer should orient themselves in the exhibition when they're walking through it at the Manil.
2: Sure. Well, when we were thinking about this, decade in her production. This is really 1960s when she really starts to make what's considered her mature work. And she begins by, as I mentioned before, making a painting by shooting a gun and letting that bullet, you know, splatter quite spectacularly, pigment that gushes and splatters all over the surface. She starts doing this at the beginning of the decade, and it constitutes a really like robust production from about 1960 to 1963. So we decided to essentially, within the organizational structure of the design of the exhibition, devote half of the galleries to this aspect of her practice. And then the second half of the show focuses on how she began in 1964 to represent the female body with a group of sculptures known as the Nanas. And these are sort of large, playful, joyous, athletic female bodies uh, and female representations in sculptural form that constitute the second half of the show. And as the cure along with my co-curator of the exhibition, Jill Dossi at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, this was important for us that this exhibition in this structure were half of the half of the show are the shooting paintings, the other half are the uh, Nana figures, is that those two kind of sides of her practice, those two subjects or approaches to making, really are the kind of key breakthroughs of her work from from this decade.
1: There's something uniquely Manil about that form and the permanent collection relative to ancient fertility pieces. Uh, is, is that something you can address?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly something, a type of object that St. Paul was looking at. So those would be the, you could think of a figure like the Venus of Willendorf or these fertility goddesses that are are distinguished right by their round, curving bodies. So yes, that is one of many references that St. Paul was looking at when she started making Uh, the nanas, but of course she's also looking at the traditions of art history, where she's not just looking at the traditions of painting, right, when she's taking a gun and literally demolishing that tradition, she's looking at one of the most well-known, well-trodden sort of representational subjects in art history, and that's the female nude, the female body that so many male artists have represented, and she's in many ways taking this well-known icon of art history and giving this form a different type of agency.
0: One of the things that I loved the most about the exhibition was the use of mixed media and and different types of information that was uh, available at the exhibition, like old editions of French Vogue and, you know, New York Times articles from 1965. And one of those articles in reference to the nanas said a line that i thought was interesting it said desam fall is not a feminist artist you know period and so i would love to hear from you you know this was done in the 1960s this work this newspaper article you know how much of the term feminist art is is a label that we've retroactively assigned
2: <laughs> well what's fascinating about that is in 1960 The feminist art movement, as we have come to understand it, and as it developed in the late 60s and into the 70s, just wasn't around in 1960 when she started making this work. So at the time, the historical context of making that statement, it was pretty different and not a kind of common way of understanding one's role as an artist, especially a female artist at the time, it's not a surprising response. And so many women artists have used similar language, Uh, but what we can say are historically, like we're looking at this work, this is about female bodies doing whatever they want. It's about female bodies taking up space in the world. This is about a female artist shooting at the sort of tradition of painting, which of course is a very masculine, practice uh, throughout history. So I think it's pretty clear we can certainly read her work as a a feminist way of thinking and a feminist approach to the world that only sort of comes out of, you know, second wave feminism that she was certainly on the forefront of.
1: Looking at those videos that y'all have on display and watching her movement and the way she's conducting and, and you know handing the gun off to have people participate in the work—it's it, it's really performance-oriented. But you know, it just the I guess the leadership, the the coordination of the of the process is was quite striking. She's cool.
2: She's so cool, and I love that part of the show. We worked really hard at working with the Getty and a lot of different archives around the world to pull together. Images of her shooting, images of the process of making uh, those works. And I think what you said, Barry, was really important that we wanted to use that documentation to show that she wasn't always the one pulling the trigger, right? That these were certainly about bringing the audience into the creation of the work of art. And this is really early. In 1960, this is just the beginning of artists like Alan Capro or Klaus Oldenburg, artists who were thinking about happenings or events or sort of performance-based art. So along with what we could call the feminist art movement, uh, St. Paul was also very much ahead of her time in terms of participatory art, which the shooting paintings really are one of the earliest examples of.
0: You know, in these shooting paintings, there's obviously these bursts of technicolor paint, but there's also these objects that are kind of mummified in plaster. And, you know, I would love to hear from you this juxtaposition of this idea of disruption. Desanfal said she loved the beauty of war and revolution, along with this idea of, of crystallization, right? Of some of these objects that seem kind of suspended on these canvases, suspended in time
2: yeah it's such a fascinating part of this work and it's as you know going through the show the the surfaces of the shooting paintings are just encrusted with everyday stuff toys religious kitsch you know you can see sort of parts of toilets and even in one work she's encrusted her own shoes into the surface of the plaster and around those objects then is where she embeds these Uh, containers or bags of pigments that she will shoot. So when the paint does kind of explode, it explodes on a whole field of objects and everyday stuff. So she's certainly within the tradition of what we now know as assemblage, where artists from this time are taking everyday stuff and using that in the work of art. And this may not think about it so much now, but in the 1960s, this was a really radical gesture of within this kind of rarefied tradition of fine art, you could throw in an old pair of shoes. So that, that's, and I love your word mummified and that's certainly like how they feel and these kind of relics of what was then the contemporary moment is so important to understanding uh, the importance of this work.
1: Michelle, um, we could talk about Nikki all day and it's, it's love your descriptions but i wanted to ask you more in line of you know the manil at large that 2021 is the 50th anniversary of the deluxe show um held in 1971 curated by mrs de Menil, among others and i wanted to see if you could describe for us the significance of that show and talk about multiculturalism as you see it at the Manila and in Houston. And the reason I ask is because I think it speaks to a long history of addressing such topics in Houston and at the Manila. and uh, currently it speaks to impact, uh, something that a lot of clients are focused on, um, a lot of our clients are focused on
2: right yes so we are very excited that this is the 50th anniversary year of the deluxe show this was an exhibition uh funded by the manil foundation and it was curated by an artist peter bradley and organized in houston's fifth ward at the deluxe theater which is still by the way and really active wonderful uh space it's considered a groundbreaking exhibition because for the first time in 1971 it brought together a group of artists a multi-racial group of artists that were painters thinking through ideas of hard edge abstraction and it really for the dimanels was a project that was as you were saying bringing together communities and using art as the, the vehicle to do this um, and it showed so many artists that have kind of since become such important uh, to us to the vinyl collection and more largely art history, including artists like Sam Gilliam, Ed Loving among so many others. And it's just one of many examples, this project uh, that is testament to, I think, how the Deos understood the agency of arts, that art and bringing people together was an uh, activist gesture. And uh, specifically for the Diminals, this was just, again, one of many types of projects, initiatives that they used to address social justice, specifically within the civil rights era here in Houston. And we're proud of that history, and we certainly Continue to think through how exhibitions can be used as a way to ignite conversations about uh, social justice, racial equity, among many other themes.
0: Going back to the Nikki DeSanfall show and bringing it full circle. You know, it's interesting that the the title of the exhibition is Nikki de Saint in the 1960s and it's true when you're in the exhibition you're watching videos where Jane Fonda was in the audience in one of de Saint Fall's shootings in in Malibu and you feel like you're kind of transported but what do you find so timeless about the artist and and what can we take, you know, into 2021?
2: Right. I mean, well, I think like any good great artists right the way they're approaching particular subjects in this case the female body masculine violence that the questions that St. Paul for example was asking in 1960 are still somehow incredibly relevant to our conversation today right and that we can continue to use art just not as a sort of relic of the past right, is this kind of mummified relic that tells us something maybe about the 1960s, which it does, but it can also be used for our audiences to, t- to allow us to think differently about our world now. And I, I can't tell you how uh, sort of thrilled I am that as this exhibition has been open and as we've had visitors and I've been able to give tours, how I've seen those questions asked in such a urgent way, it's the sort of best consequence, I think, of a, of a successful exhibition and, and my work as a curator, that the work means something now.
0: Just, just curious, on those tours, do you, is there like a most commonly asked question that you get from people walking through the exhibition? Ooh, that's a good question.
2: Everyone seems to have quite a hunger to learn about the process how she shot a gun, how the works were constructed, which as you know, going through the exhibition, it's an incredibly fascinating part of looking at this work because the artist gives you these very interesting clues that allow you as a viewer to kind of maybe figure out or try and figure out how they were made and what kind of objects and materials were used. So I'm I'm finding that's a really uh, interesting uh, point of conversation as, as I'm walking through the exhibition with, with our audiences. And of course, if you've been to the show, you know that we conclude with models and documentation of one of St. Paul's largest nanas. This was an 85 foot long nana installed in Stockholm. It no longer exists, so we brought together a model and these like very cool uh, archival images. And this is one of her most sort of infamous works of art where at the museum, at the Moderna Mosaic, you entered the Nana by passing through her open legs. At the time in 1966, it was a total media sensation, but it really kind of represented how St. Paul wanted these figures to be so sort of commanding and strong
0: and build space and make a statement.
1: 85 feet, that's quite a
0: statement. (laughs) I was about to say, I don't think I saw that at the (laughs) Manil. It's a big lady. It was a very big lady. And
2: inside this sculpture, there were things like a slide and a little cinema and even a bar where you could stop and have a drink inside one of her enormous breasts.
1: You know, we were recently at one of the patrons' uh, events, there on campus and, you know, when the weather gets like this, it's just, there's no place in Houston that's better. I wonder if you could talk a little about how the campus has evolved, you know, over the many decades since it started and how does it maintain its intimacy? I like to do like a, a regular, I refer to it as my drive-by Picasso, you know, where you <laughs> You just wheel up and you go spend some time with um, one of the great masters for you know 10 or 15 minutes and it's so accessible. There's just nowhere else like that in the world. And how much of that was determined by the Demanils and how much of it has been sort of shaped by the stewards of their
2: vision? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because our campus and our green spaces and the way various buildings are distributed through this neighborhood is really important. And it was important to the original concept of how Mrs. De Menil and Renzo Piano conceived of how this building would work. And from its inception, uh, she was very clear that she wanted a museum where the neighborhood could easily pop in, where you didn't have to have these kind of like apparatus or like Sort of structures that prevented you from access to the work of art. So the fact you're saying I can swing by, I can pull over, I can jump out, I can see a Picasso and go about my day was precisely the sort of ethos that this place intended to be, that art was about your every day, that it's vital and sustaining and life affirming that you can kind of incorporate access to art as, as as a sort of again a part of your daily life. You know, we love that our neighbors walk their dogs around and people have picnics and you can easily come into the building. I don't know if you've noticed this barrier, Liz, but like one of one of the kind of like most subtle aspects of our architecture that promotes this is you don't ascend any staircase to come to the museum. You walk in right off the street. And I think that detail to the design of this building is entirely emblematic of this notion of providing access. We're also free. So you don't have to sort of stop at a ticket counter. You can just come in, see that Picasso and leave. And I think that's one of the most beautiful aspects of of how the Manil operates and how we've been able to you know, through the life of this institution, now close to 35 years, uh, protect that part of of the identity of the Manil collection.
1: Yeah, I thought uh, last night's uh, talk by Hilton Al's where he just kind of mentioned feeling embraced, you know, upon arrival, uh, was really poignant and touching.
2: I agree, and we were so lucky to have Hilton Al's here this week and. I will say it's now available on our YouTube channel those he did a series of lectures reflecting on this institution's history including bringing up those exhibitions like the Deluxe show in 1971 so if you are interested in learning more it's easy to find on our YouTube station
1: I'm glad you brought that up those were those were two amazing uh, well it was a two part lecture but two amazing talks and you know a lot of history that that i knew but some anecdotes that i didn't really understand as well and one point that i liked so much was the comment about the demonels evolving from an old world sensibility into a new world sensibility and doing that in proximity of houston in a lot of ways is the story of the city
2: yeah and and the story of how this museum developed in a model outside of the 19th century, right? That allowed this place to become what it is and, and sort of almost be a museological experiment for things like access and questions around how to present and exhibit a work of art.
0: So as we wrap up today's conversation, which I know Barry and I don't want to, but, you know, what do neighbors, Houstonians, and all those outside of Houston have to look forward to in terms of upcoming shows at the Manil?
2: Sure. So in December, we are opening an exhibition on the photography of the American artist Bruce Davidson. In March, we open a major exhibition, a retrospective presentation of the work of the Swiss-born surrealist, Merit Oppenheim. And that's an exhibition we're uh, co-organizing with the Museum of Modern Art and the Museum in Bern. And among many other things, we're constantly rotating our permanent collection galleries. So even within galleries that you know well, we always hope to have unexpected surprises for you.
0: Wonderful. Well, lots to look forward to. And again, the Manila Collection is free. It is one story. It is welcoming and inviting. So we hope everyone gets a chance to go to their, you know, to this neighborhood gem that is the Manila Collection. So, Michelle, thank you so much for joining. This was so wonderful to hear not only about the new exhibition, Nikki de Sanfall in the 1960s, but also the museum as a whole. We really appreciate you having this conversation with us. It was a
2: pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course. And I'm, again, joined with uh, my teammate, Barry Young. This is Liz DeManchon signing off for another episode of Deep Roots Forward Thinking. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. <music>